Welcome to Frost Sessions, the Frost School of Music's official podcast. On this week's episode, composer and storyteller Stacy Garup takes a closer look at the process behind one of her latest works with Frost professor and world-class percussionist Svet Stajanov. They talk about Stacy's journey as a female composer, inequality, and what it means to have the power to vote. Thank you for joining us today, and remember to stay tuned to Frost Sessions. Hello, Stacy. It's so wonderful to have you with us. Hi, Spud. It's great to be here. Absolutely a pleasure. Um, I thought that today we could talk about um, things that are not in your bio. <laughs> I think that, you know, there's so many beautiful details that people can discover there. They can find out so much about your commissions, uh, about your successes, about your mission. Uh, maybe the one thing that I could say that is inspiring to start this conversation that, that I really am moved by of many is that uh, your bio reads that your music is centered on dramatic and lyrical storytelling. The sharing of stories is a defining element of our humanity. We strive to share with others the experiences and concepts that we find compelling. Well, I find that very compelling. <laughs> And uh, I'm really grateful to be able to speak with you because um, throughout the last couple of months, we've collaborated on a project which we'll talk about later. And I've been honored to be able to get to know you. And it's just been such a treat to be able to, to find out how special of a person and of course, as, as an artist you are. So um, I wanted to start by asking questions that I find will be interesting for people who are now following into your footsteps as a composer or just in the general uh, footsteps of a musician and then trying to create their own path that they have to carve. And uh, I wanted to start by um, asking you uh, something about, uh, you know, your beginnings. You know, uh, when you were an aspiring young musician and you wanted to uh, basically uh, look into composition, being a woman composer was not something as widely uh, um, encountered as it is today. Yep. <laughs> Yet, of course, if you dream to do something, you have to pursue it. And so I'm wondering who and what was your inspiration to begin composing and how did you dedicate to fully, how did you decide to, to fully dedicate yourself into, into this in your life? Well, it was, um, it is kind of embarrassing to admit, which is probably why I don't put it in my bio. Um, but when I was a little girl, I thought all music had been written, you know, it's like you see these Beethoven symphonies and you, you see this Brahms piece and everything's done and it was written hundreds, hundreds of years ago. So you think uh, people can't be writing music now. And uh, when I was in high school, I'd been singing in choirs ever since third grade and I played piano. Okay, I was an okay piano player. Um, but when I was in uh, high school, I began playing saxophone in the marching band. And the instructor was also teaching a music theory course. Um, I think it was my sophomore year or junior year. I honestly don't remember anymore, <laughs> which is kind of scary. Um, but in the music theory course, he sent us home early in the semester and said, write a piece of music. Mm -hmm. And if he had not done that, I would, we would not be on the phone today. It's as clear as that. Mm -hmm. It's like a light bulb went off in my head and uh, turned on actually in my head and eliminated a room that I'd never seen before. It was that instant. So from that moment on, I, I couldn't stop writing. So I would get home from doing other things like my schoolwork or whatever. And then I would go to the piano and start scribbling away and write these, you know, magnum opuses or whatever. They're really silly, but you know, you got to start somewhere. Um, and I was, I think 15 and a half at the time. So I, when I realized how much I wanted to do this, I didn't have long to 
get good enough to get into a college. So honestly, the question about being a woman composer didn't actually hit me until I was in college. Mm. Um, when I got to University of Michigan, they were very kind and they, um, they gave me a little bit of a scholarship to get there, which was really helpful. Um, but there was maybe, I was the only female in my class of composers. I think there were five of us and there were no in, uh, undergrads that were older than me that were female at the time. There were a couple of graduates who were women. Um, and a couple of them took me under their wing. They would say, watch out for that guy and that, this teacher, watch out for that conductor. You know, in other words, they're going to hit on you and they're going to, you know, you don't want to go there. Um, so, but th there are more women began coming in in the classes uh, after me. So there began to be a little bit of security and numbers going on there. What's surprising though is even today, how many schools do we have that have a large contingent of women composers in any department? we'll see them with faculties. Like there was a, a great moment here in Chicago where University of Chicago, we had Shulamit Ron and Marta Bashinska and um, uh, Augusta Reed Thomas and one other lady, I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting her name. They were all teaching there at the same time. Like, oh my gosh, that's four yeah. women on the faculty. Uh, but, but really for the most part, it's still an anomaly to have more than a couple women in a composition program. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting to me because uh, it only shows how, how important it is for a person, regardless of what the world is telling them, to follow their path, to follow their passion, and to find a way to, to uh, realize that to fruition in the world, which, of course, it's not easy in situations like this because, you know, when you're not finding, even on a subconscious level, when you're not finding the image of what you're looking for anywhere in front of you, it's really hard to understand how to get there. You know, you're not necessarily trying to imitate it, but even to be inspired by that image, it's helpful, yes. right? Yeah, very, it's very hard. Um, I had um, none of my teachers at Michigan, um, none of my com composing teachers or music theory teachers were, were women. It's as clear as that. Um, in fact, when I was getting to my senior year, Michael Doherty, bless his heart, took each one of us aside um, of our graduating class and said, you each have to basically apply to one school you're not going to tell the others about. <laughs> because <laughs> otherwise we're all going to just get into the same places and be competing with each other and my one school that I didn't tell anyone about was University of Chicago because Shalomit Ron was teaching there right. and I wanted to know if studying with a woman made a difference and um, musically so what think? yes what did you think of this musically I'd say no I she a mind is a mind you know if someone's a really good teacher and they know how to come you know they, they can take the concepts in their head and describe it to you well that doesn't seem to change because she was an awesome teacher, but it, it was more about seeing a woman who at that point in her life was both composer in residence of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and the Lyric Opera at the same time. Wow. And having her as a role model to say, wow, you know, this is what I'm, and she, when I first met her, she was pregnant. She was about to have a kid and she was wearing this beautiful red and pink dress and her hair was big and flowing. It's like, wow, you are the model of, you know, what you can be as a, a woman and really be at the top of your game and have it all. So that was very, very inspiring to me. It is inspiring for me to hear too, because even from the site, even though I was not there, you know, to, to witness a lot of the detail that I'm sure contributed to this in a, in a huge way. Just, you know, thinking about the fact that someone needs to be now a, new, a young mother, and on top of that, continue with all the responsibilities that they have in their career in writing, and also to be a great uh, mentor for all their students. And, yeah. and, you know, in a way, you just, 
you cannot really crack. You have to be able to deliver all these avenues, uh, especially in time when life is putting challenges to I mean, having a child is a blessing, but at the same time, it's a huge responsibility and a massive commitment. Yes. Um, you are, you know, needing to spend a lot of time as you should with your child, uh, you're sleep deprived to say, you know, something that, you know, I guess many more musicians can relate to, I guess. But there's so many more details to this that simply make this tenfold more complex, I guess. And to have someone yet at that point to continue to be inspiring and to continue to be a role model is just magnificent. And, you know, I am deeply inspired by this and I can see how, how important it is to, to, to have these kinds of role models for the young generation who basically, even subconsciously, if not very consciously, of course, of course also, you know, can then connect and relate to them and can sort of learn and, and, and be a step ahead in how to do this and how to sort of then grow from there. Yes. You know, it's very encouraging. So it's wonderful to find that you had this. But it was interesting that you, did, you weren't aware um, about the challenges you would face until you actually all of a sudden faced them indeed. You know, no yeah. one gave you the heads up. There was no manifesto, huh? Well, you know, when you're in high school, I'm, I, was, I grew up in California, um, in, in the Bay Area. And maybe it's just because of the more liberal spirit there. I don't know. But I, it wasn't pointed out to me that being a female composer was going to be a problem. I was surrounded by people that were very supportive about it. So, hey, I'm going to go try this. Hey. Well, isn't that so strange, though? I, I, I smile when you say this, especially because sometimes I don't want to hear anything about what's hard and what's easy. I just want people to leave me alone and let me try. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting when it comes to these sort of potential preconceived notions, if you will, in the society versus someone saying, interested to do this? You think you've got it in you? You think you want to do the work and you think you have the talent? Well, go give it a shot. Yeah. And all, all that basically I would want to know is that it's okay for me that, that I can just go and give this a shot. And, and, and actually, the less I know, I feel like actually the better off I am because in my system, I'm much more pure about this rather than having the, you know, the mental sort of tension of knowing some of these things, you know, and almost kind of subconsciously expecting them, you know, if you will. But um, at some points too, we get tested. So um, the, one of the first times I remember where it was, re I mean, obviously it was already there, people saying, oh, you're a female composer, what? You know, by the time I got to Michigan and figured out, oh, this is not something everybody does. Um, but there was a teacher who was a very sweet teacher. He worked, re he was just fantastic. Um, and at the end of my year of studying with him, I asked him for advice about you know, what do you do, what, any advice as I go about my composing career. And um, he really is of a different generation and or was. And he, he said, well, this is a great career for you to have because when you get married and have kids, you can still compose on the side. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you don't really, sir, really. <laughs> yeah, you see me as a woman who's also a composer, but more of a woman than a composer. And it was, it was the first time that happened in my life. And that, made, that was a real wake-up call. Yes. What's interesting, to me, it, it sounds like, in a way, one does not need any warning lights when they start blinking in front of them. But eventually, also, they do need someone to come in and say, you need to watch out for these couple of things. Not in a way I think that it was presented to you, but in a way we say, hey, watch out for these things. And I think this is where a role model can be really amazing. Yeah. We can come in and say, based on my experience, you're going to have your unique challenges, but also here is some that you should definitely keep in mind. And I can give you my advice. I can give you some help. We can talk about these things, you know. 
and, and that is just such a beautiful thing to have, you know. Yeah. So I, I'm happy that you had these experiences. And, and, you know, I know also you've passed this on because you actually, for a while, uh, worked in academia yourself. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, was this something that you found necessary because of, uh, um, of, of realizing how important it is to be a role model uh, for the future generations of young composers? Well, not as much as I just needed money. I mean, <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough, that too. I mean, how many jobs can there be for a composer? And honestly, I, I didn't know if I was good or, I mean, obviously I, I had enough talent, but could I succeed as a full-time composer coming right out of school? I didn't know, but I had gone, um, if you follow the trajectory of my schools, um, I went from Michigan to University of Chicago to study with Shalimi Ron, but they wouldn't give me any teaching experience there. Uh, this, the type of scholarship I had wouldn't allow for that. Mm -hmm. So I uh, left there after the master's to get to Indiana, where they actually gave me four years of teaching experience. So I taught two years of composition and then two years of music theory. Mm -hmm. And I walked into the very first job interview was, was Roosevelt and landed that job. And um, that's where I felt okay, I've been set up for that. I've gotten myself all the training I could do. And over that time, I began to realize, oh, these people really need mentoring. They need encouragement in these particular ways. And so then I also took part in, in like Fresh Ink Festival for six weeks. I mean, six weeks. Oh my, oh my goodness, six years. <laughs> it's almost the same thing, yep. It all passed like six weeks. Right, it was like yesterday. But that's where I began to realize, and especially when I was at Fresh Ink, um, there would always be a small contingent of women and out of a group of like 16 or 18 composers, we might have three women. And my final year, I think we had six. So I began having what I would call ladies lunch, just kind of to uh, make a little joke of the fact that, you know, there aren't that many women. But it gave us a, a chance to just have our own little um, experience about, you know, what are some of the issues you're encountering and what can we do to solve them? And I couldn't believe some of the things that they were saying, like they're still being told their music sounds too feminine and they shouldn't try to sound like they're a masculine you know, energy and just, really, you're dealing with all this? And it was like 2016, 2017? What's going on here? Well, it's so interesting because I find that, technically speaking, uh, music having a certain nature, whether it is a feminine, masculine, you know, intense or calm or dark or whatever, that's, that is actually a compliment. That means that the music has certain tendency and character that is pretty much clear to experience yeah but, but but it's so interesting because it was not said like this obviously what said you know as, as a almost as a criticism you know uh i you know i find that i guess growth of generations just takes time yeah and and i feel like the most important thing is for all of us to do our parts in this to where i've always found you know i was having an interesting conversation with a friend of mine and we're talking about the sort of moments in societies and in humanity, if you will, where someone comes up with a, a, a realization of something that, you know, we all eventually kind of catch up to. And we're talking about how, interestingly, the greater and more profound that realization is, the longer it takes to different societies and then to humanity as itself to actually pick up on that. Sometimes, in fact, generation after generation, hundreds of years, you know, mm. And, and sometimes even more. It's so interesting. And I guess uh, what, what was interesting is there are people who are going to be more progressive and sooner realize what that person is trying to say and try to, you know, sort of connect the dots. And others who would just need more space to kind of arrive to that conclusion. But I just think it's so important for society to 
to, to, do, to do the part that we all have to do, you know, to, well, to go ahead, sir. Oh, well, I was just going to say what's striking to me is I learned to expect it from the teachers of, you know, when I was in, when I was in college, it was 1988 through 2000. Mm -hmm. So uh, the people, the men that were of that generation that were the teachers, several of them had fought in World War II. They had come back and um, the, the woman that had had jobs, you know, stopped and married and had kids with them. You know. So there was a very particular expectation because of their life experiences. Mm -hmm. And I thought, surely when that generation is leaving academia and younger people are getting their jobs, that maybe this attitude would shift. Right. And I think that's what was so surprising about getting this feedback from these younger women composers is that we have had that shift, but yet these views are still going on. Yeah. So, and it's not, you know, all over the place. It could be just pockets here or there, and it could be, you know, very regional then. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure sometimes it also catches you by surprise. In fact, even from people from whom you don't expect that kind of uh, comment, if you will. Yeah. Um, but, but let me ask you this, you know, uh, you taught in, 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 uh, in Roosevelt University between 2000, 2016. And then, you know, obviously, you started uh, there as a, as a young artist and you grew and also you were um, an educator who grew and also as a composer by that time of, of 2015 to 2016, I think you were in a very different place that, uh, than when, when you entered that position. Yes. So I'm curious, sort of what do you find happened in that time that basically then necessitated for you to to branch out to full-time freelance composing you know <laughs> well I mean, you know it's a very bold move and i am so you know in all of that and i respect that tremendously but i know it's also got to be pretty scary among many things <laughs> also exciting of course <laughs> it was you know when you get out of school and you've got all these dreams in your head of what's going to be what i want to do and where i want to be one of the biggest ones has always been to write an opera or to get, become an opera composer, not just one opera, but many, many operas. And um, I think what happened is, you know, jobs maybe morph over time, or the job that I started at with Roosevelt um, changed over the time so that it was a lot more, by the end of it, it was a lot more classroom teaching than it was lesson teaching, mm. uh, composition lesson teaching. And the prepar preparation time, the grading time and everything was compounding so much along with all the meetings and everything that we needed to do that I suddenly was finding that I didn't have time to write more than a piece or two a year. And wow. that was like, I finally had to look at like the course of my life and say, am I happy with this trajectory? Like I love teaching and I, I miss that part so much to this day. It's, I love doing these residencies at different colleges for uh, anywhere from a couple of days to, I did one at University of Houston for nine days. And that was just spectacular because I had a lot of contact with people over and over again. But um, I wasn't getting the pieces written that I really wanted to do and especially in opera. So um, I think at that point I had a long talk with my husband. We don't have kids. So you know, that does figure into all this. If you have kids, I'm sure that that's, you know, financially and everything, health insurance and everything else gets really impacted by this decision. But we basically set out a, a couple schedules of what does, would my life look like if I teach for the next year? And what if it, I didn't? And it became very obvious why I had no time to compose. <laughs> so that was step one. Step two was um, how long can I work with uh, just compose without um, worrying about finances? 
you know, and we, we came up with a date and I put it in my calendar because I was so worried about making money. And like, how can I do this? And I, I think I, I know I'm a, a, I believe in myself, but I don't know if that will translate into money uh, that we can live on. So we had, it, we fixed the date and um, I've always moved to that date now. Like, so the date's always out there, but it, every time we get closer, it's like, okay, I'm in good shape. I'm just going to scoot that off to the future. And that helped calm me down a lot. So would you say that one of the most important things one has to do is actually what you did before you, you, what you did to help you realize that you need to change? You basically looked in the mirror and you said, am I doing exactly what I want to do? If mm -hmm. yes, great. If not, what do I need to change? Yeah, and if it's okay if your goals change over the course of your life. I mean, that's, that's how many of us actually go to school doing and end up doing what we went to school for? Most of us don't. Yeah. I tell the story about how there, I went to school with about nine, uh, 100 composers, uh, you know, 10 at University of Chicago at any given time, 30 at Michigan and 60 at Indiana. And how many of us out of the 100 really stuck with being just that composer or how many branched out and did other things? So I think today, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I think you're right. I think it's, it's okay to stop and reassess and say, well, this is where I am now. But you st here's where I started. Here's where I am now. Am I happy? If I'm not, what can I do to solve that? What's in Absolutely. my power to solve it? Well, it's so interesting because in our minds, when we have studied something for a long time, subconsciously, we want to do this. But at the same time, a lot of it is, I think, just basically being able, as I joke with my students, to say, keep one foot in the box and one foot outside the box yeah. and basically live in both worlds. Yeah. And, you know, be comfortable with comfort and uncomfortable with discomfort. And you just try to keep balancing that because honestly, it's always a question of balance. Um, yeah. As they say, the truth's always in the middle. And um, for me, I think being aware exactly that, that, that level of awareness that we all need to have about where are we? Are we fulfilled? Are we happy with what we do? And, and often enough, just being honest with ourselves. It's yeah. just, it's basically the start. And then, but I guess the hardest part then after that was this, that, that, that step, taking that, that moment of, I cannot go back anymore. <laughs> so what, what do you think kind of did this for you? What, what, you know, because I know that obviously you have, you have persevered for all the right reasons, but you know, when someone is in that very moment doing it, what do you think really helped you the most to be able to succeed when you made such a dramatic change in your life? Well, um, I had tenure, so that was the scariest part to give up, was right. the fact that I could have stayed in that job for the rest of my life and would have been, you know, fine. But at some point, am I going to be happy with the fact that I've reached the end of my life and I never wrote the operas I wanted to write and I never got the, and I, I think too, we, we were being bombarded all the time of this person has this opportunity. They got, you know, they're writing an opera for the Met. They're doing this and that. And I realized I can't be mad at these people because they all took that leap of faith and they went off. They're not teaching full-time academia. They might be doing part-time somewhere, but they're certainly not trying to pull off what I'm trying to do. And it's, it's when it became that clear and realizing, I don't know, none of us know how much time we have in life. We just don't. And um, my father passed away when he was younger. And so that's always been a bit of a catalyst for me to say, I don't know how much time I have. What will I do with that time that I, I know I have right now? And when I began to put it in those kinds of terms, um, it became rather clear. 
And then what happened is I just got on the phone and emailed with everybody who had ever said they wanted to work with me and said, hey, I'm going freelance. Let's get something together. And I applied for a lot of things with people and people helped me get consortium commissions together. So once I made that announcement and just threw the doors open, it didn't take more than about six months of hustling for my schedule to actually get pretty darn full. And um, then I began to realize, okay, you can't apply for everything because what if some things actually do come in on top of what other things you have planned? So the, the first year was very, very messy and I got through it, but I lost a lot of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I think that's part of the deal. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting because when you are in these transitional moments, you are utterly uncomfortable, psychologically, yeah. personally, artistically, you name it. Yeah. And I have to say, I've always felt like we grow the most when we are uncomfortable. Very much so. And, and honestly, those tests, I think, are where also the time in, in life filters out people who are just not willing to get uncomfortable enough. Yeah. Um, and and, and that, is, that is sort of the harsh reality, in my opinion, as much as I wish it was more, more sort of a supportive a reality to artists, is that, you know, if, if one does not love it enough and is not willing to get really that uncomfortable and take those risks and those leaps, leaps of faith, if you will, and love it enough, even when things are hard. I think in a way, that sort of life asking, are you sure you want to do this? Yes. It ain't yeah. simple. And now you're on the other side of this. And, and by the way, um, to add a point here, we've collaborated on a project we'll just talk about in a, in a second here. But throughout the project, I learned a lot about you. But especially after the project, when we started being in touch with various organizations about, about the project, and being in touch with various individuals, letting them know about this. And I just was so um, sort of stunned to see that amazing other side of you, which you talked about when you said, I contacted everybody I know. <laughs> when you were just so persistently you know, active, not only in the writing part, not only in the you know, collaborative aspect of creating this project, but actually following up on this and making sure that you do everything possible to help this project come to life and, and come to light yes, um, and, and be basically known to as many people as possible to bring publicity to it, et cetera, which only, you know, makes me sort of keep rethinking on how important it is that today artists um, do not solely focus on a product, but focus on how does that product actually come into people's you know, ears and hands yes. and eyes, depending on what the project it is. You are absolutely right. I think the, when I talked about like the, the hundred composers I went to school with, moreover than just how many actually did that one pure thing or how many have, you know, divested their, their efforts, how many are doing their own marketing? Mm -hmm. And I think it, to be a successful composer, it's a combination of uh, having the goods um, and knowing how to market them. And so at the very beginning, you need a website. If you don't have a website at this point, who knows you exist at, at this, you know, it's awful to say it that way, but it's kind of true, especially now that we're in our little caves everywhere because of the pandemic. Um, but then like I, years ago, I had, there was a student at Roosevelt, a master's student that was sending out these email newsletters and he didn't have much to say, but he said it really happily and positively. It's like, hey, I'm doing this project. I've got this going on. It's like, wait, he's a master's student and he's putting out an email. I, as a professional, should be putting out an email. So I began a newsletter probably about, what, 10 years ago now. And I sent it out every month or two. And um, that has helped tremendously because what you're, when I actually, well, back when we were in concert halls together and hopefully very soon when we're, we return to concert halls, uh, 
people wouldn't have to come up and say, hey, what are you working on? They would say, oh, I see you've got this going on. Tell me more about it. So it would actually advance the conversation, um, and that helped tremendously. But that's just it, too. I've learned over the years that in order to make this career happen, I had to get very good and very savvy about the email campaigns, uh, letting people know about pieces. I actually spent a lot of hours yesterday and today because um, I, my first big opera is actually going to premiere on September 15th as a live stream. It's a concert performance live stream. One, like for 24 hours only, you can see this thing. Um, so I'm trying to let everybody know that I've done it. I have my, I have my first opera, hopefully of many. But you know that that takes time too. You need to allot time, just like you do for composing or practicing, but time to just work on the business side of the career. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting to me because musicians are not used to uh, being less humble, if you will. And when we have to talk about ourselves in in that sense of putting ourselves out there, in a way, I guess psychologically, that suggests us waving our own flag and saying how awesome we are. And it's just interesting to think that if you then consider what an agent does and and realize that there is the business side of this, when you actually, all you're doing is you're telling how special something is. You still have to go prove that you can do it. You still have to play your best. You still have to go and deliver. Though before you do that, you also can just represent it for what it is. And if it's really awesome, if you really believe it's great, Find the language to say that. Find the language to go and, and, and make that known. And to bring curiosity and, and, and you know, people's attention to you, to where they say, tell me more. As you said, I know you're doing this. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm hopeful that today now the new education systems, for example, we at Frost School have definitely done, done a lot of this to, to bring more courses and more experiences to students to help them learn some of these skills before they leave school because it's very important. Yeah. Um, to, yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, oh. Well, that's one of the things I did on my way out of Roosevelt is I actually developed a bunch of entrepreneurial workshops and, and I basically field tested them there. Um, I did a, I, and then I, as I've been going and doing these residencies with different organizations and colleges, they'll say, hey, I, we have a bunch of freshmen. Can you talk to them about how to organize their time and you know, how to think outside the box about having a career? Or you know, if you have uh, graduates that are looking for applying for jobs, how do you put a cover letter together? So I've developed all these workshops to try to target those particular skill sets that we don't get in a traditional um, or, uh, university. And a lot of universities are catching on and some are, did quite a while ago. But yeah. I think it's a, a real shift for universities to have to, to think that way and then find the time in their overloaded credit systems to allow for this. What are you going to take out if you're going to want to make this an actual credit bearing course? It's true. It's true. It's a bit of a give and take situation. You have certain things you have to teach people versus others that you wish they'd know. Right. Uh, Yet how do you fit this in? Well, you know, uh, I believe that also the newer generation sort of of faculty are far more tuned to this naturally. For example, uh, when you were teaching, you know, you already wanted these things to be done. I think there's a lot of people who are with the same uh, uh, mindset at this point. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a question of, I guess, both being proactive as, as faculty members, you know, to, to, for our students, you know, as leaders, as mentors, if you will, too. But also at the same time, um, working with institutions to integrate more and more that part of what it really means to be uh, an artist today, which is to have to learn how to self-promote, 
to have to get comfortable with with public speaking. They have to get comfortable with um, uh, be be able to express in words yes. something about your projects that would make you feel uncomfortable sometimes. Yet you have to say it to to a person who is wanting to hire you. But you need to you need to inspire them to do it. It's very it's very uh, uh, I guess important factor of today's um, profession of being an artist. Um, so that being said, you know, let's talk about uh, maybe that 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 beautiful collaboration that I'm so grateful to have been a part of. Um, for our um, friends who are listening and watching, um, the Cabrillo Festival of Contemporary Music is uh, United States' premier new music uh, large-scale orchestral festival. And um, I have been privileged to work at the festival and to be a part of the festival orchestra for now, I think, um, eight years or so. Um, I had a few uh, summers off and then I became a permanent member and it's a truly beautiful experience. Um, when I started working with the uh, organization to be a part of the orchestra, Marin Alsop was the artistic director and now um, actually Christian Masalaro, who is a alum of the Frost School of Music and a hey. fantastic conductor, uh, <laughs> what a small world we live in, is the new music director and this festival uh, is extremely special because it really paves a path that is so bold to pave in new music. Almost everything that is presented at the festival is either world premiere or a, a work that is not wildly, wildly performed, yet is relevant and necessary to be played more. And it's astonishing to me of what amount of artistic legacy this festival has carved out by its numerous commissions and phenomenal collaborations with composers who all come to the festival and all their works are basically rehearsed in a very direct, proactive uh, way where the composer is very involved with the conductor in the orchestra and vice versa. It's really a precious festival. So obviously this year, a lot of the festivals, if not all of them in the world, had to go either virtual or to change plans of how they're held. And the Cabrillo Festival was in a similar position, except um, last year, or maybe a year, two years ago, I imagine, they commissioned Stacey Garrett to write uh, a piece that would be premiered at the festival, celebrating 100-year anniversary of um, women's suffrage. Yeah, it was last year. Last year, correct. Last year, okay. Um, and <laughs> so this gives a bit of a context of where we are. And so Stacey starts writing the piece, and coronavirus hits, at which point, basically, Everything gets put to a, to, a, to a halt. Everybody has to wait, and the festival goes virtual. Um, at this point, the festival uh, was able to sort of collaborate with Stacy on on how we can present possibly this virtually. And this is when I got involved together uh, with Stacy in the festival. We were able to to present this work on a video that I'm going to ask maybe if can be linked to this um, whole interview so that people can uh, watch this. So. This is some of the context. I hope this helps um, our, our friends who are listening and watching. So the piece that basically you wrote, Stacey, is called The Battle for the Ballot. Mm -hmm. And it is work that focuses on celebrating, first of all, um, the current anniversary of women's suffrage, except it also really explores how we got here. And mm -hmm. it has beautiful quotes that are authentic from... Um, suffragettes, seven of them, as I remember. Seven, uh, yeah. um, they were black Americans, white Americans. Um, and this piece also really uh, focuses on exploring, I think, racial equality or inequality, should we say, 
-hmm. And um, also, what does it really mean to have the power to vote? Right. And to make a difference. So, um, can you tell me why exactly did you write this particular piece versus any other? What <laughs> did you say, this is what I want to do particularly, and I'm going to tackle these topics like this? Well, this is a, a very uh, convoluted and strange history. Um, one quick side note, uh, most of this composing happened after the pandemic hit and pretty much we knew the performance would get pulled. I wrote it anyway because my schedule is such that I didn't, I thought it would make sense to just go ahead and keep it where I did. If I hadn't, we wouldn't have had it to record. So I'm really, really glad. I, composers out there, just keep with your schedules, <laughs> keep writing because you never know what kind of opportunities may come up that you just didn't expect. So, and, and Spet, thank you so much for really, what is an awesome, awesome video. That was really, uh, when I tell people that you are a percussionist and an uh, engineer and producer, they cannot believe it, that you've got so many talents going on. But I think it also makes for a very strong video, the fact that you are a musician and you're watching the, and putting this together with the musician's ear and eye. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, now back to the, the question at hand. Um, I always work with commissioners to figure out what's important to them when they commission me for a piece. So I always get on the phone with them and have a nice long conversation. In this case, Christy and I had a, a phone conversation where he immediately said he wanted a narrator with orchestra. And when, they had, when Ellen had called me, she had said, well, it's going to be to you and Christy to figure this out. So when he said narrator, it's like, okay, now I need texts. That's fine. I um, got a whole bunch of books, did a lot of research on um, different suffragettes. and. Um, it became apparent over time that the piece would be better organized, at least in my head, structurally, if I went with one single text. And I had found a speech by Susan B. Anthony that she had given, she had voted in, oh, I, sorry, I don't have the um, detail right at my fingertips, but in a presidential election in the late 1700s, or 1800s, whoops, yeah, probably around 1872 or so. And she got arrested for it along with uh, several other women. And then she went on a tour, a talking tour to say, is it a crime for a woman to vote? And um, she laid out her case point by point. And I basically made the whole structure of the musical piece on that speech. So um, fast forward to June of this past year when uh, George Floyd had been killed by the police and the, all of the uh, protests began it was one of these head-turning moments where I realized, oh my God, I, we're, we're seeing the ramifications of history here. I hadn't dug deep enough to see that Susan B. Anthony was such um, a, a, she has some very, she meant well, she really did, but she aligned herself with white supremacists. And in my research, I hadn't dug deep enough to realize just how much she had, what exactly she had done or that she had been basically talking with people in the KKK. And at that point, I'm like, I can't do this. I, we can't go on with this text. Ellen and I had a, a really helpful conversation where I said, can I just scrap that text, find new text and do this over? And we had basically a week to do this. And That's what we did. <laughs> so I went on amazon.prime or amazon.com right away, bought a bunch of books that really helped get me focused. They arrived pretty fast. I bought some that, um, anything that couldn't be delivered on Kindle is what I got delivered. And then I would check the footnotes and go to the uh, resources online and found a bunch of things that helped really clarify, like the Crisis Magazine by the NAACP had a couple of um, issues that had suffragists that are writing in about why we need the vote and why it's important. 
and that helped refocus. So I think what I'm getting at is at this point in history, you know, at any point, we have to stand behind our, our product. Um, if the piece could have been Susan B. Anthony all along and that would have been okay, but um, once I discovered that history, I was no longer okay with that personally, um, and even if the rest of the world might have been more accepting of it. Um, and at that point, I had to take my own stand and, and pull that text. So I think, uh, ironically, the, the thing that uh, I used to help determine the shape of the musical piece did help when I put in the, the quotes by the seven suffragists total. So Susan B. is still in the mix, but she's a very small, small part now compared to all the other voices. And I think it actually made for a very more cohesive piece because now we see, we hear uh, the talk about race issues and everything else through the voices of these seven women. And what's most important about this, sorry, one more, one more quick point. Of course. Is that um, we, they, one of the lines actually that I did preserve of Susan B. Anthony, as she says, if we don't get citizenship, you know, enforce citizenship and the vote for everybody in this union equally, uh, groups are going to find ways to discriminate and keep uh, and disenfranchise voters. And um, she's right. I mean, that's, we see it playing out today. And I think that's why um, the way that the piece ends, I wanted to choose all texts that were before uh, the ratification of the 19th Amendment so that there's a sense of we still need to make this happen. And I want that to still come through in the piece. And what I think was so brilliant that Ellen Premack and her team did is at the end of the video, you'll see the word vote come up in just big uh, letters. And it's like, yeah, I cried when I saw that the first time because it's like, yeah, that's the exact message I'm trying to say with this piece is we always have to be vigilant against disenfranchisement. Yes, just just for context, Ellen Primack is the fantastic director of the Kabir Festival. Um, this is her 30th, 3-0 year <laughs> um, of, of, of being in this role. And she is an incredibly inspiring uh, professional and a woman who has just cast my utmost respect uh, among many other peoples, I'm sure. Um, so it, it brings me to think when you talk about the, the, the context of how you ended up uh, figuring out uh, what the final message should be and what are the sources of that message. Uh, it struck me how important it is actually for an artist to stay extremely humble and to, to remain at that level of vulnerability where at all points we could be off to a path that is not the best one we can take. And we have to always just be able to adapt, to be really honest with ourselves and to say, wait, as you, as you said earlier, this may not be the text I should use. I really need to think carefully here. I need to rethink. I need to be very self-aware and aware of what I'm, I'm basically the message that I'm giving. Yeah. And be, and be comfortable with, with, even if it's late in the game, sometimes saying, for the for the good, for the greater good, for the for the right reasons, we need to we need to refocus this a little bit. Exactly. Um, and I'm really grateful to you for being so open-minded and so honest with yourself and with everybody else who gets to hear and experience your music, um, because you know uh, it is so difficult these days to tackle very sensitive topics. Yes. Yet it is so necessary. Yeah. It is so necessary. They're sensitive because they're not easy to tackle. Mm -hmm. And I, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, one of the things I've been personally struggling with during this time period is we see all the chaos going on in politics and dealing with the pandemic and with the upcoming election and everything. And I've 
felt over and over again, what use am I as a composer? Because all I do is write music. But at the same time, you know, how, should I be going out and trying to get people to vote? Should I be, you know, we can't do the knocking on doors and, you know, canvassing or anything at this point, but should I be on the phone, you know, five hours a day trying to convince, you know, and part of me is like, well, I think I can speak through music. I think that I, and with this piece getting out and being put on different radio shows and stuff like that, people have been writing in saying, thank you so much for, for taking this on and for um, helping to enlighten you know, a lot of, I had a, when we premiered the video, one of the people from the um, Cabrillo Festival wrote in saying that, I think it was her, um, a friend uh, uh, has a daughter that was saying she just learned more about the history of the suffragist movement from our 16 and a half minute piece than she did in school. So right. I think we, I have to just remember in moments where, you know, things are getting really kind of crazy out there in the world, that we are doing good through our art and we just need to be honest with ourselves and what is our message, what we're trying to say. And um, my, my biggest fear is that Cabrillo was already too far along, like the train had already been going along far enough that we couldn't just put the brakes on for a week for me to find a new text. And um, I was so grateful that Ellen and Svet, that you and Christy and everybody were okay with me taking that week to find the new text. Well, I always believe that under pressure, creativity can sometimes exceed the expectations. And, you know, I know people handle pressure in different ways, but I think you are a, real, a true pro. And you, you said, I need the space, but I will deliver in that time. And that, I think, is what, in a way, separates to me what a true professional is versus someone who is just not ready for this yet. You know, you, you, just like your mentor didn't crack, you delivered. And that's a compliment and that's a statement, a testament to yeah. how important it is to have these kinds of experiences where you just are inspired by someone who is that strong. And then you yourself will be the next person to inspire a younger generation with your strength and with your commitment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm curious about uh, how you tackled the parts of, of the topics that was controversial to talk about, discuss. I know you're using quotes from suffragists, but at the end of the day, the fact that you are the composer and the fact that you compile these statements and you deliver them in one uh, um, sort of in one musical body, mm -hmm. uh, I think can, can be extremely intimidating. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I realize how, how much pressure there is on one to do this in a way, as we spoke about it, being honest, but also to do it in a way where you are, you are bringing the best out of these and you're really using them realistically for what they're supposed to be saying, yes. you know, not out of context. How do you handle that? How do you handle that part of the pressure or that part of the process where you know that you're going into something which is of that sensitive nature? Well, that's a very, very good question. Um, I think... First of all, I did quite a bit of research in that week. I gathered as many sources as I could together, and then I literally printed them out. As I sat on my futon for at least 10 hours that day, like once I had gathered everything together and just sorted through everything and began finding out what's going to craft the best narrative to get the, to build the arguments like I want to do. And there were certain words that were coming up that I wasn't sure if they would be politically correct at this point in our history. So um, one of the things that really helped me was that Ellen Premack had connected me to, oh, and I'm going to blank on her last name, but her first name is Bettina. She was part of the um, panel discussion that happened the, earlier in the day of our premiere. She is a specialist in um, basically in Black American voting issues. And um, I was began emailing her throughout the day saying, is this okay for me to say, you know, and 
And she would write back and say, historically, yes, this, you're talking in a historical context, that's going to be fine. So I think the fact that Bettina made herself that available on that very particular day when I was trying to piece it all together was without her, it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have felt as confident by the end. I was still scared. I mean, I still had a big drink of beer at the end of it, just like to, to call my nurse. But I just really needed to make sure that I wasn't stepping out of, you know, one issue and into another. So I think running it by Bettina first, just those issues was helpful. And then I sat with it for a night and then sent it to um, Ellen and Bettina in the morning and said, okay, <laughs> is there anything in here that you think may be controversial? And so once they both gave their okay, then I finalized everything. So I think we're not operating totally in a bubble, even though we are in our own bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're not operating in the bubble. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm uh, inspired by this because um, I realized that, especially in situations like this, you also have to run this by a team of people who you collaborate with and who have, you know, an open mind, all of them do, but at the same time, they also have to understand your point. Yes. Um, and, and they have to agree to the, the vision, the vision of this. So I, I'm, I'm so happy that, that you know, if, I always believe that the process is the most important part. Don't you agree with that? Where oh. the process is, is literally the most precious part of it too. That's why we were where we were at the end is because of the process you chose to take and the risks that you kind of had to take and in a sense, last minute reevaluating everything and just saying, I need this to be absolutely right. I need to do whatever is necessary to do this, to be honest and to be right. Because honest art is really what art is about. I think if it's not honest to me, I don't know if it's art anymore, forgive me, but I no, really think so. I think you're right. I think the hardest part about making a change that fast at the end is that um, the way that my brain seems to work best is if I make a decision on one day, I set it aside for a couple of days, then take it back and look at it again. And then fine, you know, fine tune it, finesse it, whatever. We didn't have that kind of time. And <laughs> so um, as it was, the other big problem with pulling out the text the way that I did is, um, if you know the piece Lincoln Portrait by Copeland, you know that a lot of the text begins without music or it starts over music and then it decays to nothing. Either way, there's a buffer zone that Copeland has left for the narrator and orchestra. And I did the same thing to some extent, but then I have other parts where the music is ongoing while the narrator talks. And those timed sections had to be pretty much perfect in terms of the new quotes. They had to pretty much match the second length of the Susan B. Anthony quotes. That was complicated. And um, as it was, um, at the very, we had this wonderful last uh, editing session where we got Jessica, Fry, you and me, and um, Ellen Premack on the phone together to figure out how to shape the last, the end of the video, because we were trying to, what kind of images should we use? And, um, uh, oh, I'm so sorry, I've just blinked out. <laughs> just talking about the decision, the decision-making process of Car 20. Oh, thank you so much. Sorry about that. So what happened in that conversation is I had realized that one line of text was too long. And remember, um, Sveta, I don't know if you remember, that we were, I was trying to get you guys to cut that line of text. And you guys came to the defense of that line of text saying, no, it's a really good line. But then we figured out there was another line that we could chop um, in half instead. So that's what I'm getting at, is it, it can be very hard when uh, you're making that kind of quick decision to make sure that you feel completely 100% comfortable. What is surprising to me is that everything but that one line was really comfortable after that fact well you never know i mean after all 
maybe somehow those dots were connected way before we knew them. It could be. And I, I think, too, the amount of research that I did the summer before and all the way through the fall prepared me for that moment. Like if I hadn't known where to look for the new resources, there's I don't know if this would have happened. It, it would have been so much an insurmountable amount of work. But because we've been prepared, because we've done our homework or I've done my homework and I know where to look, I think that's really the key for so much of of, of, of a career. Yes, I absolutely agree. You know, it's interesting when you said that the end of the video has this, um, this literally pure text, white text on black background, vote. Um, and for me, that's a symbolic term too, as Mollis is direct. And, and it says basically that. Yes. We all need to be. And you are just someone who I'm so inspired by, someone who I'm so grateful to have gotten to know, someone who embraces humanity and art and collaboration and who is humble. And it's so very powerful with, with their craft and with their art and what they can do. And um, I hope that this uh, conversation has been uh, an enlightening little glimpse for people into um, the fact of how human someone who is very inspiring truly is and how important it is for us all to be <laughs> and to pursue who we really aspire to be and to never stop. So, Stacey, I'm so grateful to you for being with us, for sharing so many precious moments of your life and of your wisdom with us. And oh. for all who are listening and watching, I really hope that you have an opportunity to go and get to know Stacey's art and to meet her one day because that's the best treat, I think. <laughs> Well, Svet, it really, I can't tell everybody how much it's been a pleasure to work with Svet over the last several months. Um, when you enter collaborations, it can always be a little tricky, but Svet has been really a dream to work with. So thank you, Svet, for not only the artistry that you put into the piece, the thoughtfulness of the how to put together the audio, the video, but also just making the collaboration process itself very comfortable. So, and very smooth, I think for the most part, you know, it's been really just a tremendous process and I, I do hope people will check out the video because at this point the video is not really just me it's ever, all of us put together it's Svet's skills it's the 60 musicians of Cabrillo it's Christy conducting it took all these people to create that one video it's it really belongs to all of us yes absolutely and and so is one of the most beautiful part of art which is to collaborate together to create it and I do it's hope amazing. we get to meet we meet in person someday <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we will. That is so funny. That is so true. Last but not least, we have only hung out virtually on the phone too many times on Zoom, but always a pleasure. <laughs> Just saying how, how amazing it is sometimes, you know, that, that, you know, you realize you get to know somebody like this. And honestly, I think when we meet in person, which I look forward to, it will literally be so we can have a beer in person. Exactly. <laughs> Very much so. Well, thank you so much for the interview. I really appreciate it. You too. Thank you so very much to you. Take care. Take care. Bye.